And Father, every word of that is true. You stand alone. There is no other name that is worthy, no other name that is higher, no other name that is even beside yours than the name of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray right now that, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to move in this place now. That, God, you would continue to be opening eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond to the glorious and greatest truth of all time, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray now that your word would go forth, that you would watch over it and perform it as you see fit in the hearts of your people. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that we would come under your word right now with humble hearts, teachable hearts, ready hearts, expectant hearts, that you have called each person here and desire to speak with them today. May we be changed or changed more to be more like you and to love you more than when we came in this morning. Oh God, may it be so. Holy Spirit, help. Guard my mouth from error and say what you want to say. In Jesus' mighty name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, praise the Lord, church, that... We get to open up God's word now, and uh, I'm excited to dive back into the book of Acts and the series uh, called Foundations of the Church. The Foundations of the Church journey through the book of Acts. Now, uh, today, we are going to be looking at one of the greatest sermons ever preached by one of the men who was the least adequate to be preaching that. And it is, uh, it's been a real uh, help to me this week. Let's just put it that way. And uh, uh, if you do not have a Bible, we're going to be looking at Acts 2, chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. If you do not have a Bible, the ushers are coming forward right now. You're going to want a copy of God's Word. We're going to be looking through a big section of text today. So make sure that you have a Bible in front of you to follow along. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. And if you do not have a Bible at home, then please take that home as a gift, as our way of encouraging you to study God's word on your own as well. Foundations of the church. Well, remember, we've got a definition of the church that we've been carrying through this series so far. And so let's get to the, the summary statement of what is the church. A lot of ideas come to mind when we think of that. But here, the church. It's called ecclesia. It's the Greek word ecclesia, which is this. If we could sum it up, it's this. The people of God living on mission for God. You'll see that on the screen. The people of God living on mission for God. That is this church. The church isn't a building. It's not a place. It's the people of God living on mission for God. And so far, we've looked in chapter 1 of Acts on what is God's mission for the church. He gives us that in Acts 1.8 where he says, You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We looked at that word witness, the martis, the one who shares or declares their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We looked at the mission of the church and, and then the promise of the church that God gave when he sent the, the Holy Spirit to help fulfill that mission in us and through us. And then our last message as we started in Acts 2 we saw the fulfillment of that promise on the day of Pentecost. What an incredible day this is. And we're still in this day, by the way. Lots happening this day in the church. This is one of why, why, why are we taking three messages to focus on this and not just skip over it? Because here's why. This is one of the greatest and most important days in the history of the church, loved ones. The church was birthed on Pentecost it signified the inauguration of God's new blessing of power and presence into his church through the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. And it is on this day that the Lord empowered the apostles to fulfill the mission of the church by proclaiming the message of the church. How do we fulfill the mission of the church? We proclaim the message of the church. What is the message of the church? The gospel. The gospel. Now, we don't ever want to assume, for the sake of clarity, we don't ever want to assume everyone's on the same page and what that means. There's a lot of false gospels 
being preached there today, and we're called to test that. And so for clarity, let's get a definition of what the gospel is. If I could sum up the gospel, it would be this, the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Summary statement, the good news, that's what gospel means, good news. The good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you look at that, you look at that definition and you may say, well, why is that even important? Good news of Jesus Christ, I hear good news all the time. I got a birthday present on the way, I got Christmas presents on, that's good news. No, 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 that's, this is a whole different level of good news. You say, why is this important, so important? Because there's a problem, that's why. And the problem is this, every one of us has a problem, but it's a problem that not a single one of us can fix on our own. Every one of us, you and me, every person who walked in this room today and the billions of people around this world who didn't has a problem. And it's a problem that not a single one of us can fix on our own. And what's the problem? Sin. Sin is the problem. And what is sin? Okay, let's get a little brief snapshot of sin so we have it in our minds. Sin is uh, any act of disobedience against God's divine law. There's sin. Any act of disobedience. If I could stretch that out a bit and say this, anything we think, say, or do that goes against God's word. Think, say, or do goes against God's word. For example, have any of us in this room ever told a lie? Even as a kid, have any of this room ever stolen something? Have you ever lost your temper and acted out in anger? Have you ever looked lustfully at another person? Have you ever stolen something? Like, these are all acts against God's divine law. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I love how R.C. Sproul, he expands on this just beautifully. You'll see it on the screen. I would recommend you take a picture of this. This is a wonderful description of the gospel. He says, the gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings. And that problem is simply this. God is holy and he is just and I'm not. That is going down like vinegar to our flesh right now. God is holy And he is just, and I am not. And at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before a just and holy God and be judged. That's the reality. And I'll be judged either on the basis of my own righteousness, or lack of it, or the righteousness of another, that is, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, doing what God says is right through his word. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God and not for his own well-being, but for his people. He has done for me what I couldn't possibly do for myself. That's good news. But not only has he lived that life of perfect obedience, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. Beautiful. Yes, that is the most glorious news of all time. I don't care what comes across your Twitter feed this week. I don't care what comes across Facebook. No news that you're going to read this week touches that. And if I could sum what R.C. Sproul set up right there, it would say this. The gospel message is Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. What's the gospel? Jesus in my place. The righteous for the unrighteous, the obedient for the disobedient, the sinless for the sinner. That's good news. And here in this text, we see the first sermon ever preached as the church was being birthed. And its focus, guess what its focus is? Why would you go anywhere else? The gospel. There's the gospel. It's not, how can we focus on getting more people into church? And how can we make sure we have enough resources to get this thing rolling? focuses on the gospel because this is the mission of the church one mission one message one mission one message the church has been given the message of the church is the gospel and in it 
we see three essential truths we must embrace if we are to be saved in Jesus Christ from our sin and see our lives as believers lived increasingly in his power. Ready for this? Here's your good news today. Here we go. The message of the church is the gospel. You must realize its promise, salvation. You must realize its promise, salvation. And to honor the authority of God's word, let's stand as we read the first eight verses. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 21. Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Picture what's going on here. I love this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah, can you see him? Men of Judah, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. The message of the church is the gospel. You must realize its promise, salvation. All right, so we have to get some context here. Always interpret scripture in context, right, loved ones? So let's get some context of where we're at. First off, let's look at uh, when this is taking place. Peter is preaching here on the day of Pentecost. Remember, what's Pentecost? It's the one-day festival that took place 50 days over the Passover. In this case, 50 days after Jesus' death. The Passover lamb himself. And at this festival, this was a big deal. It's one of three major Jewish festivals where Jews from all over Israel and from all around the world, thousands of them, think about this, what, live in the text, think about what's going on here. Thousands of Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the first fruits of the spring barley harvest. This is why Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Harvest. That's going to take on a new meaning in a few verses. The Feast of Harvest. So that's when this is taking place. Let's look at where, okay? What's going on? Well, last week we saw when the Holy Spirit was poured out, you'll see pictures. Here, the disciples have been in the upper room. The disciples have been in the upper room. 120 of them gathered, and, and the Holy Spirit was poured out in tongues of fire over them. And this is right on the edge of the temple courtyard. And so they can hear all these thousands of other Jewish men coming around And as such, when they start speaking in tongues, those Jewish men can hear them. They've just been gathered in the upper room and the Holy Spirit's just been poured out and they began, remember what happened? They began to speak in different languages of the nations where God was advancing his gospel to. Remember, these were not just ecstatic utterances. Not just ecstatic utterances, but actual languages that these thousands of people gathered in the temple courtyard to offer their worship were understanding in their own languages. Awesome. Awesome. You agree? Awesome. At least 15 languages, if not more. Remember? He gave the whole list. You can just see the whole list in verses 9 to 11. But look at how the Jews respond to hearing these voices. Go back to verse 12 to 13 for a sec. And all were amazed and perplexed. They hear the disciples speaking in all these different languages. They were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Verse 13. But others mocking said, uh, they're filled with new wine. Today's terminology, hey, they're drunk. These guys are just drunk. Just mad. But see, in hearing that, in the response to them, here's Peter. Peter gets up. Who's Peter? He's like, oh, I could never be Peter. Really? This was the guy who denied Jesus Christ 50 days ago. Filled with fear at a servant girl around a fire. And now getting up in front of thousands of Jews. What happened? What was the change? The Holy Spirit got him, that's how. He gets up. The leader of the disciples 
He gets up in the temple courtyard and proclaims to them the first sermon. He, in the first sermon, the disciples aren't drunk. He says it's only the third hour of the day. What's the third hour of the day? Well, the Jewish, on the Jewish day, the, the clock there, the, the Jewish day begins at 6 a.m. And so it's the third hour of the day. Do the math. What time is it? 9 a.m., right? 9 a.m. He's like, they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Rather, rather, here's what's going on. It is the promise of God that he spoke through the Old Testament prophet Joel that they are witnessing being fulfilled. Now, a little background on Joel. Joel prophesied what we're about to read eight, approximately 864 years earlier. Sweet. 864 years earlier. The prophet Joel, it's a, he's a minor prophet in the Old Testament. You can read the book. It's just a short book. A minor prophet, and, and the whole focus of Joel's prophetic ministry was the coming day of the Lord. It's written all about that, the coming day of the Lord. Now, let's get some clarity, because you hear that term prophet, and a lot of different things can come to mind. Let's get clarity on what a prophet actually is. The Greek word for prophet means this, one who declares the word of God for a particular situation. One who declares the word of God for a particular situation. And this particular prophecy that Peter is about to unpack here in, verse, in verses 17 to 21, this particular prophecy comes from Joel 2.28 to verse 32, and it spoke of how God would pour out his spirit. Let's read. And in the last days... Peter gets up, in the last days it shall be, it shall be, there's the promise, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Approximately 864 years before this moment. You don't think God's true to his word? You don't think he's going to fulfill it? He's going to fulfill it in his time and in his way. So that term last days there, you see that last days in verse 17 and in the last days, what's that? What's that? You hear all these, are we living in the end times? End time? here, here, here's last days. The time period between Pentecost until Christ's second coming where the Holy Spirit will be immersed or poured out to the church and there will be signs and wonders done in the last days. So by that definition, we're living in the last days from Pentecost until Christ's second coming. Now, pause for a moment. There's been so much confusion around prophecy and signs and wonders. We need some clarity on this if we're going to interpret the text correctly. Remember, such a crucial truth, loved ones. Write it down again if you haven't already. What we see throughout the book of Acts in signs and wonders, remember, it's a historical narrative. It's telling the truth of what actually happened. What we see throughout the book of Acts and signs and wonders is descriptive and not prescriptive. It is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. Acts is describing what happened, but is not prescribing for how it always has to happen. Crucial truth. Because if, you don't, if we don't understand that, it takes us into some very confusing places theologically that are inconsistent with the authority of all of God's word. Descriptive, not prescriptive. God was using each of these things that he did in the book of Acts, the signs and wonders done, to authenticate his message through the apostles and for the establishment of his church. Now, now, okay, loved ones, does God still heal? Yes, he still heals, for sure. Does God, can God still give a vision? Yes. However, this is not the norm now for how this is done. Why? Why is that? It's right here. Because we have the entire word of God now. The disciples didn't have this. They didn't have the closed canon. 
That's why Jesus says, don't add anything to this and don't take anything away because it's sufficient. I've given you my whole word that he spoke and authored and is now complete and contains everything we need for life and godliness by the divine, living, and active power of the Holy Spirit at work through it. Hebrews 4.12, he says, my word is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces bone from marrow, soul from spirit, and, and, and exposes the innermost attitudes of the heart. That's the living and active word. That's the power of the Holy Spirit through it. Okay? So we have the completed word. You see, to preach God's word, here's what we have to understand. We think of prophets and all this confusion. Listen, when you, to preach God's word is to prophesy. This is his word, to declare his word in a particular situation. When we open up God's word, the disciples did not have his completed word yet. Clear, clear? All right, all right. Now look at this, verse 17. He says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. What is all flesh? This is all who repent of their sin and are saved through Jesus Christ and have received the Holy Spirit as the seal or guarantee of their salvation. The Holy Spirit is the seal, the guarantee that one has been saved. I love how uh, commentator Tony Merida puts it this way. He says, Joel foretold the day, you'll see it on the screen. Joel foretold the day in which every believer from every tribe and tongue. Hey, by the way, didn't you love that video of those pastors as we started off today? Beautiful. So many tribes and tongues and languages declaring the name of Christ. Every believer from every tribe and tongue would be a prophet while God appoints some service servants to the office of a pastor. Every believer is called to teach in some capacity. That's our mission, to witness, to teach people about Jesus Christ. With the pouring out of the Spirit, God has equipped his people for the work they're to do. We must declare God's word to the world. It is our mission, Acts 1.8. It's our mission. Now, clarify something here. Again, not all of Joel's prophecy you'll see here. You say it's a sunny day out right now. What do you mean it's turning black? Not all of Joel's prophecy that Peter quotes here is fulfilled at Pentecost. Okay? Yes, the Holy Spirit had been poured out and would continue to be given to all who repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. However, Pentecost in some ways is a pre-fulfillment of what was to be completely fulfilled when Christ returns at his second coming. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. He says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. That has not happened yet. It's coming. It's coming. These are the signs of the end times that we live in. We'll increase and see increasingly as we get closer to the return of Christ. That is the day of the Lord. If you're wondering what more of this looks like, I just encourage you to uh, read through and study the book of Revelation. It's filled with it. Nothing like a little apocalyptic literature to get your day started, eh? Puts coffee under the table. All right? Take a look through the book of Revelation. But as of now, the sun's still shining. Praise the Lord. All right? Verse 21. Love this. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The beautiful promise that comes from all of this. Ready? Here it is, right there. Salvation. Salvation. Through Jesus Christ, the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Now, what does that term saved mean in the Greek here? The call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Saved from what? What does that, what does that actually mean? The Greek term there means to, I love this, deliver out of danger and into safety. To be saved means to be delivered out of danger and into safety. It is God rescuing people from the penalty and power of sin and bringing them into eternal life with him. Awesome. And this gift of forgiveness of sin and eternal life is available to all. All. No, notice that? 
and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. All, not just some, not just the quote-unquote good people in society, not just this who are going to be the spiritually elite people. He says it's for all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as the only way of salvation. And you say, well, wait a sec, how do you know that? How do you know it's available to all? How do you know Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation? Let's just make it clear. He goes, you know, we look around the, the world today and we see, we see uh, so many religions claiming the same thing. We see so many gods lifted up in society. So we hear of so many ways to get to heaven. How do we know? Acts 4.12. You must realize this, loved ones, on the screen. And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Brought from danger to safety. Death to life. So how about you? Have you realized God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ? Let me word that differently, loved ones. What are you pursuing salvation in today that isn't Jesus Christ? What are you pursuing salvation in today that isn't Jesus Christ? How about this, some things that came to mind. How about your works? If I just be a good enough person, then I'm going to be able to get to heaven. won't happen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's for by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourself, not by works, so that no one can boast and say, I earned it. God's glad to have me on his team. Maybe your works, maybe this, another religion. Maybe you've come in here pursuing another religion and thinking that they all lead to the same, but they don't. Maybe it's the small g gods we erect in our lives, whether it's possessions or family or, or relatives, or my parents' faith will save me because they're Christians. It... Maybe it's finances we're running to for salvation, status, health, people, whatever. Here, let's just sum that up. If it's not salvation in Jesus Christ, loved ones, hear this, here, it's not salvation. If it's not salvation in Jesus Christ, it's not salvation. In God's word, maybe we're, we're here today and we're like, well, what do I do with this? God's word for you today is clear. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8, you'll see it on the screen. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, loved one. Today. When you hear his voice, there's no other way. Those finances you're going, not going to help. The status you're not going to do it. The other gods, small g gods you're trying to erect, not going to do it. And loved ones, if you're here and you have been saved in Jesus Christ, question for us, the question that this begs is this. Are you living in the realization of what Jesus Christ has done for you? Are you in awe of it? Does it still bring you awe that Jesus Christ called you and chose you and saved you and you could not earn this. It's not based on anything you've done. He called you, chose you, and saved you, bringing you from death to life. Are you still thanking him for this? I was so convicted by this. How many days do I go by and not thank the Lord for my salvation? Are we still thanking him for this? Knowing that we didn't earn it, we don't deserve it, and that's by his love for you and grace towards you that he's called you, chosen you, and adopted you to be his. Hey, loved ones, loved ones, big application right here. Don't let this become familiar. Don't let familiarity numb the awe factor for you. How often the beauty of the gospel is distorted and watered down by familiarity. It's beautiful. Don't let it become familiar. The message of the church is the gospel. You must realize its promise, salvation. But here's the thing. You must also recognize its power, transformation. Transformation. Look at verses 22 to 24. Men of Israel, he goes on to say, hear the words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen? Good news? Good news? Good news. Peter begins this section by emphasizing how Jesus Christ, although fully God, was also fully man. He talks to the incarnation, the Son of God becoming a man, yet being fully God. God the Father gave clear testimony and proof that he was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Messiah and the Savior through the miracles, the wonders, and the works that he did. Now notice, don't miss this. Don't miss this right here. He says, I love it, in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan there, the Greek term for definite plan is this, a predetermined plan to set boundaries for. This is how it's going to happen. This is when it's going to happen. This is why it's going to happen. And this is how it's going to happen. God's definite plan. This didn't happen as a surprise. God was not taken by surprise to say, "Uh uh-oh, they're killing my son. What do I do? He's not taken by surprise. Foreknowledge, the definite plan, it was predetermined and made definite by God because he's the one with all authority. Nothing could stop it. It was his plan to have his son delivered up to death on a cross and pay the penalty for our sin. I love how Tony Merida goes on to say this. You'll see it on the screen. Peter shows his audience that Jesus didn't die as a pathetic victim. He laid down his life in fulfillment of the sovereign or authoritative plan of God who purposed to sum all things up in Christ. Yes. The authority of God, the definite plan. Now, 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 clarity, clarity moment right here. Let's be clear. Even though it was God's plan that his son should die for our sin, loved ones, it was still our sin that killed him. And therefore, we are responsible for his death. God's plan, but we are still responsible for that. Verse 23, notice what Peter says there in verse 23. He says, the definite plan, foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed the Son of God by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men is wicked men. In the context here, we're talking about Jewish and Roman officials that put Jesus to death. But that's us too, loved ones. Because of our sin. Remember Romans 3.23? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I are guilty of this. And so often we hear this, loved ones. Turn to Jesus and you'll find the purpose of your life. You'll live with great peace. You'll live with great comfort. Yes, praise the Lord. That is true. That is true. However, however, before all of that, the truth is we need salvation in Christ not to just find purpose for our lives. We need to find salvation in Christ because we're guilty before him and deserving of death and hell. That's the reality, loved ones. And we don't hear that in a lot of pulpits today, do we? It's more, have your best life now. Every day can be a Friday. Hey, this is the truth. You and I were guilty of that. And we will still be guilty unless redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 24, greatest news. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by that. Even though he died, Christ was resurrected from the dead and it was impossible for even the greatest and most powerful impact of sin, death itself, to hold him because of his divine power over it. Amen? I'm so thankful for it. We have a savior. We have an advocate who went to the cross on our behalf. But you and I don't recognize the glory of the gospel if we don't realize what we've been saved from. And this... And it is this same power that God now gives through his Holy Spirit to each person who calls on his name and has the power to transform our lives for his glory and live in victory through him over sin. What is this power? Resurrection power. 
the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in us and through us. How do we know this? It's a big statement. How do we know? 2 Peter 1.3 tells us. You'll see it on the screen. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own. That knowledge, the foreknowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Death couldn't hold him. And we see how the power of the gospel transforms. You say, okay, so, so we got the power of the gospel in us. What does that mean when, when Christ, the Holy Spirit's mission, is our transformation to see God glorified in our lives? What does that look like? Well, Peter goes on to unpack that in verses 25 to 36. But to do that in this, in this section, he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. He goes back to the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? He goes back to the Old Testament because he knew he's talking to Jewish men. You know, as you're talking to the Jewish people who hung everything on the Old Testament but aren't going to believe and even to this day struggle to believe the New Testament. So he goes back to the Old Testament to prove it. Now, now listen, Psalm 16 is written by King David and it's called a messianic psalm that points to Jesus Christ. And through David's life, it shows us the power of the gospel and its ability to transform us through the work of Christ on the cross and now how that's at work in our lives if we are his. Five ways. We see five ways the gospel brings transformation into our lives as his followers. Here it is. Ready? Five ways the gospel transforms. Number one, through the strength of Christ. Look at verse 25. Again, Peter quoting David from Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord before me, for he is at my right hand. I may not be shaken. You know the right hand? You want the picture of the right hand is? It's the hand of power or strength. The hand of power, of strength. When, when we keep God before us, when we keep our eyes, we keep our heart fixed on him by the power of the spirit, through his word, through prayer, through obeying by the power of his spirit and keeping in step with his spirit, we will not be shaken. What's that word shaken mean? It means agitated, anxious. Anyone here anxious? Battling anxiety, battling worry, battling fear, battling doubt. Anxious, thrown down, to be literally thrown down from a secure place. What a picture, what a picture. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the weight of anxiety, the weight of fear. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, keeping him in front of you, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Every believer can live in the strength of Christ. question is, are you walking in his strength? Are you living in the strength of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit? Are you keeping him before you? Loved ones, in your God time every day, are you keeping God for you? I'm going to keep him at my right hand, but then I won't be shaken. I'm going to keep him in front of me. Are you saying, Lord, I'm going to keep that time a priority so I'm not swayed by whatever comes today? Are you keeping the priority of prayer the priority of church coming together under the authority and being, and being uh, spoken to through the word of God, preached the most glorious truth of all time and being refreshed and strengthened. Are we doing that? And then are we following in obedience by the power of the spirit? Where are you being shaken right now that you know those things, whether it's anxiety, fear, temptation, whatever. Where are you being shaken that you need to get your eyes back on the Lord with? What is that for you? Yeah, anxiety, addiction, temptation, fear, ongoing sin that needs to be brought before him. Five ways the gospel transforms us. Number one is through the strength of Christ. Every believer can live in the strength of Jesus Christ. Number two, through hope in Christ. Every believer can live with hope in Christ. Look at verses 26 and 27. Therefore, since I can't be shaken... My heart was glad and my tongue re rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
corruption. The word to dwell there. I love the imagery in this. Verse 26, my flesh will also dwell in hope. You know what the word dwell means? It means to encamp, to pitch one's tent. I love that picture. The illustration there, it's camping season coming up. Every time I see the trailers going up, I see the tents on the yard, they're getting all ready. This means to pitch one's tent, to dwell secure for the Christian. It's all, hey, hey, loved ones. For the Christian, it's always camping season. Always camping season for the Christian. Why? Because we pitch our tent at the foot of the cross. And we remember the hope that we have in him. We're not, we're not being set up in Algonquin part or Port Hope. We're being set up in Christ's hope. Christ's hope. And what is hope? What is hope? Here it is. The Greek word for hope there means expectation, trust, or confidence. No wonder you're not going to be shaken. When you keep your eyes on the Lord, you remember his authority, you remember his power. You pitch your tent right there. You're looking at the face of God through his word. Yes. Trust, confidence that if we are in Christ, he's not going to abandon us. We will not be abandoned by him in our death. That is Hades, the place of death. And instead of seeing corruption, which is decay in our bodies through death, we will rise to be with him and will be given a glorified body. It's called the doctrine of glorification. We'll be given a glorified, we won't see decay. Hey, hey, loved ones. When Christ comes back and we are glorified with him and we see him face to face, loved ones, here's the hope. Here's the hope right there. Are you living your life in the hope of that day? Martin Luther said, I have two days on my calendar, this day right now and that day. Oh, there's the hope, loved ones. Don't get your eyes off them. It's so distracting in this world today. Take your eyes off your phone and put them on your Savior. Live in the hope. Pitch your tent there. Nothing can take that away. The hope in knowing one day soon we will be with him, see him face to face is our anchor that keeps our trust in him. Hey, hey, loved ones, regardless of the circumstances we're facing, the life of a Christian is a life lived in hope. A life lived in hope. The enemy, hey, the enemy will try to steal this from you and distract you in this every day and get you to pitch your tent on everything else, to try to put hope in everything else. Pitch your tent there on your finances. Pitch your tent in your job. Pitch your tent with your friends. Pitch your tent on getting married. There's your hope. So, loved ones, what's your hope based in today? Where are you pitching your tent? Where are you pitching your tent? Five ways the gospel transforms us. Number one, through the strength of Christ, through the hope in Christ, and now this, through wisdom from Christ. Look at verse 28. You have made known to me the paths of life, David says. Every believer can live in the wisdom of Christ, loved ones. Christ gives us wisdom for not only the way of salvation, like he's unpacking right here, but also through the understanding of his word of how to live righteously right now. What is, you say, what's righteousness? What's righteousness? It's just this, doing what God says is right and what he promises to bless by the power of his spirit. Doing what God says is right. He gives wisdom for that. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, he just has to ask and God will give generously. So question, are you walking in wisdom today in what you're facing? Are you taking God at his word and asking for wisdom to live it out by the power of the spirit? If not, just go back to last week's message and a whole message on wisdom. Whole message. Okay, five ways the gospel transforms us through the strength of Christ, through our hope in Christ, through wisdom from Christ. Here it is, number four, through joy in the presence of Christ. Every believer can live with joy in the presence of Christ. Look at verse 28b. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Through Jesus Christ, we've been given access to the presence of God and can draw near to him each day in our lives now through the word, through prayer, through church, through obedience, by the power of his spirit. And we can walk in joy regardless of the circumstances we are facing. And loved ones, it grieves my heart to know and I was so convicted by this even in my own life today. You know, how many Christians need to remind their faces of the joy that we have in the Lord? 
This is true. How many Christians need to remind ourselves of that? This world is in dire need of joy, the joy of the Lord. This joy gives us a glimpse of the joy we will be filled with when we see him face to face in his presence for eternity. I love how Randy Alcorn, who writes for Desiring God, you'll see it on the screen, he says it this way, heaven's environment is pure joy. Heaven's environment is pure joy. Joy will be the very air we breathe. The Lord is inexhaustible. Therefore, his contagious joy is inexhaustible. That is fuel for the soul. The joy of the Lord, Nehemiah 8.10 says, is my strength. No wonder the enemy tries to steal your joy more than anything else. God does a great work in your life, and the enemy comes to try to steal your joy because the joy of the Lord is the strength. Are we walking in joy from the presence of the Lord? drawing near to the presence of God. You can't find true joy anywhere else, loved ones. You can't. I tried for a long time. You can't. Lastly is this. Five ways the gospel transforms us. Number one, through the strength of Christ. Every believer can live in Christ's strength. Number two, through hope in Christ. Number three, through wisdom from Christ we live with. Number four, through joy in the presence of Christ we have access to because of Christ. Number five is this gospel transforms us through the authority of Christ. Every believer can live under the authority of Christ. Look at verses 29 to 36. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and because of that, we are, and of that, sorry, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter now confirms that when David wrote Psalm 16, he's not or could not be writing about himself. Not writing about himself because everyone could see David's tomb if they wanted to. He said that in verse 29. Go see the tomb. His tomb still has his body in it. However, based on the promise, that is the oath in verse 30, that God had given him, It's called the Davidic Covenant. David knew that God was going to bring his Holy One, the Messiah, through his family line and therefore was speaking of his resurrection in Christ, his Lord. Verse 34. He's not speaking of himself ascending to heaven. No, 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 no. David's in the tomb. His soul is there, but his body's in the tomb. Speaking of the resurrection of Christ. Now, now, verse 35. Don't miss this. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Love this. Ready for this picture? You know what that footstool means in the Greek? It means this. To put one's foot on the throat. Boom. I was going to ask someone to come up and demonstrate that, but that would just be nasty. All right? So here's the reality. To put the foot on one's throat who is conquered. To place foot on the neck of the one who's conquered. What an awesome picture. See, how can he do this? Because the term Lord. When, when, when the gospel says Lord, when Peter says Lord, King David here, it means this. That term Lord means title of honor and respect. Reverence for the one who is in supreme or sovereign authority and possesses absolute authority over all. Absolute ownership and uncontested power. Uncontested power in that term. In short, it's the title given to the Messiah, the Son of God whose authority always blesses those under him through his power, provision, and his plans. The Messiah's authority always blesses those who are under him. The gospel has the power to transform our lives because the one who has all authority and power is the one who died for us and rose again, conquering his enemy Satan for all time, and with that, the power of sin and death. Foot on the throat, you are defeated. I am watching over my people. So question, have you surrendered your life under the authority of Christ? Have you surrendered your life under the authority of Christ? 
And is your life being increasingly transformed by the power of the gospel? Just look at those five things were just a snapshot. Lastly is this. You might say, hey, what must I do for that to happen? What does that look like to be under God's authority? To be growing in the transforming power of the gospel? Here it is. You must respond to its proclamation, repentance and faith. We close with this. You must respond to its proclamation, repentance and faith. Look at 37 to 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Thousands of people, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked, that means wicked, generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. <laughs> From day one, this church was a mega church. I'm sure the disciples were like, oh, what do we do here? How are we going to do this? Day one. Look at this. That word cut to the heart in verse 37, it means convicted of sin, pierced. I love the picture. Pierced all the way down to the heart. Not just, yeah, I'm a sinner, so what? Not just, yeah, that's what you believe, but I'm going to believe what I believe. They were cut to the heart, pierced all the way down in response to hearing the gospel through the Holy Spirit as Peter was preaching. The people were deeply convicted of their sin and their need for a Savior that they asked, what must we do in response to this? What must we do? Verse 38, Peter says this, repent, repent and be baptized. What does that term repent mean? To change one's mind. To change one's mind about sin. To turn away from their sin and turn towards Jesus Christ in faith, in confessing him as Lord and Savior. Repentance is not, repentance is not this. Yeah, I sinned and I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry there's consequences. No, Corinthians says that's, that's worldly grief. It doesn't end well. Repentance is this. I sinned against a holy God. I am broken and need to turn away from that and towards him for forgiveness. It is through putting our faith in Christ, repenting of our sin, that we receive forgiveness for our sin and are given the gift of the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation. Not through baptism, but the moment of salvation. He is our guarantee of it. But Peter says this, finishes here, he says, once they put their faith in Christ, they must publicly declare that through the act of baptism. What is baptism? The public declaration of one's faith in Christ where you are immersed, baptizo, you are immersed in water and brought back up as a symbol of your identification with the death and resurrection of Christ. It is in fact the first, hey, get this, loved ones? It is in fact the first command that Christ gives to his followers that he wants them to do after they have been saved to be publicly identified with it. It's the first command. John Stott says this. I see it on the screen. Jesus Christ does not impose his gifts upon us unconditionally. What the gospel demands is a radical turn from sin to Christ, which takes the form of inwardly of repentance and faith and outwardly of baptism. Of baptism. Loved ones, this was for the Jews back then. It is for us today for everyone whom the Lord is calling to himself. There is no one, know this, know this, there is no one who's too far off or too distant from God that he cannot save. Amen? There is no one who's too far off, as verse 39 says. No matter what you've done, no matter where you are, he is still transforming lives for his glory. 